kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 538, the podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard, and today we welcome back Dion Baia, who hasn't been on, I think, in well over a year, but he is an author, he is the co-host of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, he is a screenwriter, and more importantly, he is an actor known as Jimmy the Rake, who recently appeared in Hobo <laughs> with the High Kicks. So yeah, like your partner in crime over at the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, you wear tons of hats, but... Mr. Baya, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, I think it was either 2018 or 19. I was right around the, my fir- the publication of my first book. Uh, you you were gracious enough to have me on. So thank you for letting me back into the ceremonious uh, confines of your beautiful empire of podcasting. Excellent. And audio, video casting. Yeah, well, I've got, a, I've got a small issue I have to raise with you that I just learned about the other day when I was recording with Jay Blake Vachera. He informed me at the end of the episode... That Jimmy the Rake, apparently Jimmy the Rake has appeared in another movie with Chris Funderburg and Jay Blake Vachera. So you, you, you got you to gotta help me squash this. Like, oh, what's going on? Like, where, where did this character come from? Well, that's interesting. I guess that is true. That might be, I hadn't thought of that yet. Um, that's an involved story. Um, <laughs> hello, everybody. Uh, welcome aboard. How is everybody? Hope everybody had a good holiday season. Um, let's see. Uh, the name originally comes from, a f- uh, my father worked for the railroad for 40 years and I don't know how far into it, I guess Blake went with this cause I think he knows the story and the guy's name, he knew a guy on the railroad named Jimmy the rake, uh, or Bobby the rake because they would, he used to rake the poker tables. Every time they played poker, he would rake the table. So that always stayed with me. And now that you've sparked that memory from, I guess it was college. We every year had to do. Uh, we had a freshman film we had to do. We had to, every year we had to finish a film, and then where I went to, which was a conservatory, Purchase College, which was a SUNY State University of New York, um, you would do your 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 end thesis project, and then the faculty would review it, watch it with you, tell you afterward what they didn't like about it, have you leave the room. They would talk about you, then you'd come back in, and they would tell you if you graduated to the next grade. So oh, they could Jesus. at any point kick you out. So so I think it sounds the, like a martial arts m- studio more than like a film school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was on Doctor Han's Island. It was really weird. We had to go to Hong Kong and go on boats where there were praying mantis fights. So um. What I didn't know, it was a huge anxiety for a lot of people. And I think now they lo- – I don't know if they're a conservatory anymore. They loosen up their guidelines to let non-majors into their classes. So they may not be this strict. But back then it was an elite school to go to and it was kind of like the poor man's NYU where we were shooting film and and uh, 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 16 millimeter at freshman year where I think at NYU – you don't really get your hands on equipment to do your own film until maybe your junior year. Uh, purchase was – Right in the freshman year, was throwing stuff at you, explaining about sync and all this stuff, or or uh, MOS, mid-out sound. So anyway, my sophomore film, I think we did a, we had to do a, a documentary and we had to do a scene to fulfill the, the the fictional narrative class. And I did this scene where, yes, I think there was a guy's name. No, wait a minute, Bobby. I think that's what he's talking about. Or did 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 he tell you what he barely mentioned? It. it was at the very end of the episode, and I mentioned that we were you and I were about to record, and I mentioned something about Jimmy the Rake, and then he said that uh, he and Funderburg and you had done oh, okay. a film where you where yeah, you portrayed yes. this so, character. I'm sorry. So now, okay, now, so I'm I'm conflating two stories. So I just gave you useless information. So anyway, I ended up doing this scene, <laughs> and 
I think both of them appeared in it. Blake did. He co-starred with me. But I, in that, I played Mr. Harry Rote Jr. from Scarsdale, which is a very obscure reference for people who don't know. That's Alan Arkin's character from uh, Wait Until Dark. Gotcha. And he's a... It was a very formidable character of the late 60s. It was oh, based the greatest, on play. The greatest jump scare of the 1960s was his character. Correct. At the very end of the movie where yeah. the theaters were in with this jump scare. So they would gradually turn the house lights down so that by the end of the movie, at the climax, you were in the dark as well. And then this would scare the hell out of everybody. So I love that character so much because it was so forward thinking to show you where psychopaths go today in cinema. Uh, I was that character in that movie, in that scene. So... When we were bored out of our gourds on weekends, we would shoot movies on the side there. We'd shoot videos. So we did do a, a, a movie which uh, escapes the name. The name escapes me now, but we did a video where Blake was a washed up boxer and I conned him out of a crap load of money. And my partner was Chris Funderburg. And I was, I think, Bobby the Rake in it. So that might mean in a Pulp Fiction kind of world, it's, yeah, like, it's like Vince, Vince and Vic Vega. Yeah, absolutely. So, we're creating a shared universe and we didn't even know it that connects all these yeah. different filmmakers. And I have that, I might have that on DVD because these were all shot on VHS at the time. We were using, um, you know, the, just the camcorders we had around because this was the late nineties. So, um, I might have that transferred to DVD. If I do, I'll send that to you. We have a bulk load of stuff we did. One of the ones most notorious is Twinkle Rainbow, which Blake had on up for a while on YouTube, but I think you couldn't find it unless you searched it properly. But it was it was one of those Twinkle Rainbow, you know, those go-go lights you'd get from like Spencer's that like you turn on and it turns and it's almost like a bright light that shoots out all the the the, the rainbow s colors you could have like in a in a like a, a you know tech kind of club. Well. A friend of ours had that, and we turned it on. Every time you turn it on, it would turn, and, and we would be mesmerized by this thing. So we did a movie which was like this thing would take into your minds, and that was me, Chris Funderburg, um, uh, Jay Blake Vachera, and uh, we might have had somebody else in it. Was Cribs around at that time? When, when did Cribs enter the picture? He was always there, but he never shot anything with us. We never. He did a movie once that I don't know if he finished that I was in. Uh, I never saw the footage of and Chris was in, but uh, I didn't hang out with him as much as uh, Chris did and as well as Blake did. Uh, the, the foundational thing was me, Blake and Chris were all freshman year stuck in the same suite together. So we had an eight person suite. Oh, so was it potluck? We all just met each other at random. Yeah. Yeah. I, my roommate freshman year, first day was Jay Blake. Blake was my physical roommate in my little double room. And then across the hall in this suite of eight people was Chris Funderburg. So the three of us met that way. And then we were all, we're all in the same class. Oh, you know, um, every year they would, I, I forget how many people would apply. They would only pick 20 people to be in every class. So it was a very small class every year. And then at the end of every year, they would kick people out if they didn't think you were kind of keeping up or doing anything or doing your workload. So, um, yeah, it was very serendipitous that we all met like that. And especially Blake and I sharing a, a room to get, we actually lived together. Um, and we all shared a common bathroom and that kind of a thing. So we would get up and see each other in our boxers and we'd walk out to the living, you know, the little common area. So because of that, and then we, Cribs was in our same class. Uh, that's how we all became friends. So me, Blake and Chris would hang out a lot more. Chris and Blake, you know, were hung out all the time. Uh, I was away doing, you know, with the female population, you know, I was like, oh, ladies are around. Hey, you know, this is great. So, you know, I would sometimes leave and go do stuff and then, you know, get drunk and stuff like that. They didn't they weren't as big drinkers as I was. So I would go kind of, I guess, 
quote unquote party. Yeah, I've noticed I've recorded with uh, Jay Blake a couple of times, and anytime I mention drugs and alcohol, he kind of gives me these strange quizzical expressions. I'm like, oh, I guess just that wasn't what you were into. <laughs> no, <laughs> he never all. really was. I mean, where for I me in college, heavy heavy drug consumption and movies went together every single time. We did not watch movies sober ever. That, and that's always been my, my mantra, at least with, um, you know, I guess you could say with, uh, cheat THC and, um, alcohol. Um, I, you know, I never really went too farther down the spectrum because, you know, I don't oh, we have... used to have like fucking shroom parties for like watching toy story or vampire hunter D or sometimes wow. with the, uh, I remember the booger sugar even got involved on a few screenings of like Robert Altman's mash and like even, even more sure. random John Ford's the man who shot Liberty Valance. You, oh, you ain't lived until you've movie. seen that yeah. on fucking cocaine, but that's what I did <laughs> the first time I saw it. <laughs> and my when I when I dabbled with those kind of drugs, I never was sitting down watching movies. Yeah, usually you're supposed to be out socializing and being a normal person. Yeah, yeah. the only time I would do was either drinking or smoking pot. And um, yeah, but you know, I think if you asked Blake his top five nights where he's gotten you know horribly hammered, he'll blame me because I would, especially in our early years. If he would come in home with me on the weekend and hang out with my friends, we were going over somebody's house and drinking. So he was forced to drink. So there's a lot of situations I forced him into or we would Peer get pressure, some, a handle. Yeah. And I'm not saying I would say do it. It's just that he'd get in a situation and he just, OK, I'll have a drink. When And then because of that, you know, I don't know. He hasn't really he doesn't drink anymore. I don't think ever. But, um, you know, that, I think I would. Uh, be I'm the feeling the, the, the foundation of, of a hardcore drinking game married with a movie where we find the people that we know in our circle of friends who are into movies but still enjoy tilting a glass back from time to time. We find a way to mix all this together because there is a strange, like, virginal sobriety streak in the world of film love where, like, that's their main vice is that they're a film freak. But I enjoy stirring some of my, my vices together from time to time. So I'm gonna have to figure something out. I completely concur. I, I, I've um, kind of uh, set the alcohol down at the minute because uh, with COVID going on, I was consuming it more than I realized. And I was like, you know, I should give my liver a break. And I haven't really given that sucker a break since high school. And now that I'm, you know, in my early 40s, I said, you know, why don't I see if I put and I put it down and I realize it's the longest I've gone since high school. And, uh, you know, I haven't noticed any difference with the body. Everyone's always like, you'll feel so much better. Yeah, I've got a lot of friends who take January off entirely. No, no pollutants of any kind going into their system. And they usually lose like 15 oh, pounds. Bless them. Yeah, I mean, I, I lost a little weight. Uh, but mostly it was just I'm not having those horrible hangovers that I used to wake up with. And those are the bane of my existence. As much as I would stay hydrated while drinking and doing all the different secrets of, you know, even just drinking vodka, I would still wake up just sometimes two-day hangovers. Yeah. The body has limits. And as it gets older, the limits are just much more obvious. So it's just a, the sad so, reality of the aging process. Which is me, But that's why I like to uh, smoke a little ganj in the evening because um, no hangover. You're a little cloudy, a little spaced out, but at least you, it allows you to bounce back. Well, let's start digging into who you are a, a little bit. As I mentioned before, you you have a lot of different creative enterprises, a lot of things that seem to spark your interest. How do you, when you introduce yourself to people, how do you characterize who is Dion Baia? Because it seems like you enjoy filmmaking, you enjoy writing, you enjoy acting, you enjoy working as a, a technician in television. So what what is your core competency? What is like your, What is what drives you? Well, that's a good question. My goal has always been to act and direct in film. And that was my impetus to go to college for film. Uh, it was kind of, I just didn't have the, I hated the anxiety in 
uh, high school of being on the stage acting and being in front of people. So I guess for uh, um, not any better excuse as just that I didn't want to have the I didn't have the the balls, I guess, to, uh, to 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 go and audition and be an actor. I tried to do the backdoor route like Quentin Tarantino of get in, do, you know, go to a film school, learn the the, the actual uh, theory behind it all, that kind of a thing. When I got out, my idea was... Golden Girls as Elvis. That's the way you backdoor. No, I did not. You know, exactly. And it's like, oh, you know, it's so, so close because I love Golden Girls as well. Um, And I love Maude. Don't get me started on Maude. Um, (laughs) But it it was just, um, that was the impetus. And then when I got out of college, I immediately... Start said like okay now what am I going to do now because college film school was so great about teaching you stuff especially our school when we were I think we were one of the last of the generation that was taught film because I don't think we were editing linear linearly on Steambacks or Moviolas the actual physical film we were using a movie splicer and then our senior year they let us use the seniors allowed were allowed to use the avids yeah I remember in the late nineties I was a big deal I would say we've got an avid in our office like ooh and everybody would act like you have like a fucking AI like in in your building but. Quick interruption, just quick question when it comes to film school, because it seems like you got a lot out of it when it came to mastering different aspects of production. And I'm always a bit more of a, of a cynic saying, well, screw film school, just take the money you're going to spend on tuition and go off and make some shorts and a feature, and you'll learn just as much. Am I blowing smoke at people's ass, or where do you stand on the divide between just the, D, like the DIY route versus actually signing up for a curriculum? Well, um, certainly I know, like if you talk to Blake, I think Blake's uh, stance on it is, you know, we blew a lot of money and we didn't really learn anything. Um, I I think I look at it more like an element of that is true. Where I work nowadays, I work in television, um, in cable news, and I'm an audio. um, I I put the mics on anchors and guests when they come in the studio. Um, So uh, a lot of that I just learned while I was there because I had a film background and I I didn't go for television. So I think a lot of it, you can teach anybody on site. I think college did open my horizons, certainly, to the, the theory aspect. And I, I was influenced. There was movies, especially French stuff I don't even care for now, like a lot of, you know, the French New Wave or uh, foreign cinema in general. You're, you're too busy watching children's programming on, on PBS, as you were alluding to before. Yeah, we which, is a, which is a bad. <laughs> yeah, I was I was watching Mr. Rogers and, um, you know, Reading Rainbow and Today's Special and all those. Other I remember Today's Special. Oh. God, that's weird. It's funny how when you haven't heard a name in years, when somebody mentions something like today's special, it like opens up a chamber in your mind. Like, oh, it's like too many memories at once. It's about to appear. Yeah, Uh, exciting world is here. Look about it right now. It's about to appear. Today's special. Today's special. Today's special is. So, um, I don't know. I, 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 I enjoyed it. I mean, I. It's not. I guess it kind of delves into the political line when you start talking about if college is affordable nowadays and if kids should go. I do think it's completely overpriced. So um, uh, the benefit I think about our school was also that we were that we were very uh, focused on the major and we didn't really have to then uh, have the obligatory uh, undeclared classes to take where people have to take a foreign language, have to take a math. The only thing they had us do was just take a non-film major course of our choosing and you get a credit from that. Gotcha. Everything else. And they told you going in, they said, listen, you know, you're not going to have a well-rounded. And I said, that's fine. I wasn't very good in math, um, you know, and I, I didn't do very well in my SATs. So I said, I'm all about film. I love film. So that gets back to your broader question was I, I always grew up loving film. And then with almost a 
mature kind of looking at it. I kind of as even as a baby or as a small child, I understood things that I guess weren't really uh, uh, spelled out for me in a certain sense, if that makes kind of a, a so I watched a lot of things and absorbed a lot as a kid. And I loved uh, all kinds of film in particular because I'd watch it with my dad and I was exposed to this stuff. So since from a little point of view, I wanted to be a truck driver because I was into, you know, matchbox cars and hot wheels. And I like trucks on the highway. And then that evolved when I was like, after the age of six was, I wanted to act. I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And and that's always what it was. So I had a very linear, I knew what the, the, the journey was. I just didn't know how uh, realistic that would be. So went to film school, got out of film school and film school was great teaching you stuff, but the problem was it just didn't land you getting a job. A lot of people, I don't know what the rate ratio is, but I would say at least 50, 60 to 70 percent of people who go there for that major may not even get oh, I'm into the, the numbers that. are far higher. I guess like there's a great anecdote where John Carpenter on his first day of school, they say like 97 percent of you will never actually work in the movie industry. And he said it didn't bother him at all because he's like, they're not talking to me. Like He knew he was yeah. going to be that three percent. I completely agree. I mean, you're right. It might be higher, but a lot of I don't know. There is only about four people out of the class of 20 that I graduated from that I know of that are still doing something like semi film related something film related. yeah and i mean i don't know i mean would you um, i mean i guess there are a few examples of people who have gone that route i mean obviously like spike lee or jim jarmusch or martin scorsese like there's sure. certain people who have gone the academic route or george lucas like all all the film school guys from usc in the late 60s and early 70s it's kind of a, a legendary crop but i'm much more entrepreneurial well, our school we had robert rodriguez who did new jersey drive i think it was uh, and, and Hal Hartley, they, they were products of our school. I think Hal Hartley was, I know Nick Gomez was, and then we had, um, our school was also very big on acting. So we had Stanley Tucci, uh, Edie Falco, Wesley Snipes, uh, Ving Rhames, Stephen Weber. Um, a lot of people came out of, um, purchase because they're, they're, uh, conservatory for acting and music, music is big too. John Faddis, who was Dizzy Gillespie's protege, who was the head for, for a number of years at the head of the Carnegie Hall jazz band. He was a teacher there. And that was a good thing about uh, the school was that they had people who were working in the industry teaching. So our cinematography teacher would, would not be there, say a couple weeks because they were working on a movie or our editing teacher, you know, got a, um, I think Academy award or an Emmy for her work on uh, three, two, one contact. I feel like it was an Oscar, but I don't know how that would be possible because it was a TV show. But uh, there's a weird thing in school where obviously everybody who signed up for these classes is hoping to work in the industry. But even I went to graduate school for to get an MBA. And even in the world of being in business school, you still get this strange academic divide where you have certain professors where you realize they've been a teacher for way too long and they've lost touch with what it actually takes to actually go to an interview and, and get a gig. And so I feel like some, I guess it depends upon the school and it depends upon the professors, but maybe it's just you got to place the responsibility in the students. Really do your homework and figure out which schools are actually going to help you find your path because I feel like a lot of times people are just spinning their wheels. And as you mentioned before, film school can be prohibitively expensive. And say you're going to spend $100,000 on your tuition, well, why not make three or four shorts followed by a feature film? Like, I, I, yeah. The honest answer is I don't know where you would learn more. And then not only that, um, a couple points for what you just said. One, nowadays you have a lot of kids coming out of school who just don't even go for a, uh, a degree. They just go undeclared. So they come out with some weird nothing. They just have a BA and then, you know, they have no kind of competency to get a job. And, and then let alone what's going on in the world nowadays. And then to your point, too, 
film school on top of that, since we were shooting film, we're shooting 16 millimeter. And then we were also using Nagras uh, for, to, for sync sound when we got into our sophomore and junior senior years. So that was expensive. So my senior film, the one I think you watched, that was 10 grand that my parents had to give me that we had a student discount with Kodak. But we had to go buy our film at Kodak in New York City, go get it processed at Duart or A1, which are now defunct. Are they came to Cordura from 2001? Yes. Yeah. Which, there's apparently the a 1959 movie the same name, which I've never seen. Is it an homage to that, or is it just a strange No, not at all. <laughs> it was just a Sinatra song I liked a lot. Gotcha. And then it was one of these where back when there was cassette tapes, I had the, my, my dad had the Frank Sinatra reprise collection, so I loved the tapes, so this song came on. And I didn't know the I couldn't figure out a name on the movie, so I think a lot of like in the 11th hour, I said, oh, I'll name it. This is a great song because the song is about these people who come to this town uh, to, for redemption or for their destiny, but it's – it's either it goes hit or miss. And it wasn't until years later, uh, probably 15 or so years ago, I saw the movie, which is very good with um, uh, what's his name? Uh, but from High Noon. Um, uh, uh, Gary Cooper. Yeah, Gary Cooper's in it. And there's a lot of B, uh, not B actors, but uh, co-stars who escape me like Ernest Borgnine kind of types or Robert Ryans, who in the 50s, whenever it came out, were huge. And you're like, oh, look, it's Jackie Lambert, somebody. And it, it's a very good movie on its own. It's a kind of Western. And it didn't occur to me till after I finished the movie that, oh, crap, uh, you know, there is this other movie that I should have I looked into this more. Um, and then I never did, the problem is I never did anything with it. Where Blake's 2001 film, he uh, he had that screened, or was it his junior film? He had that screened somewhere. Uh, and I never got mine into festivals because I put commercial music in it. And I was worried that I was going to get a copyright infringement. Yeah, like you can, back in the like, day when people would get festival rights, like indie filmmakers, because you'd pay yeah. less and you could play at festivals to show people what you got. But at the same time, you're not going to, no, no lawyers are going to show up at your door. Yeah, and I should have looked into that more at the time because I could have probably did that, but I did not because my fear was I had copyrighted music in it because it just made it flow better. And I was into the – I uh, certainly more back in the day, but I liked the Scorsese, the Tarantino way of having uh, songs elicit emotions. So I'm very much – uh, looking from a filmmaker's point of view, I love, you know, when I think or write stuff, it's, I can see it in my head and I see the shots and the shot compositions and where I put the camera. And then I envision also the music or the stuff behind it. So that's why my 2018 book, Blood on, Blood in the Streets, which was originally based off a screenplay I'd written uh, post-college, has a music uh, soundtrack list on the back page because there's so much music in the book because it was originally from a screenplay, it's almost like a companion piece as a as a as a soundtrack that you can get with the movie or the book. So um, uh, post college, I graduate, and then I was trying to figure out how to get into the business. I serendipitously, uh, just by pure luck, uh, my father worked with somebody, a conductor whose girlfriend worked in cable news. I gave them the uh, resume, and then uh, for the past twenty years, I work at the very infamous Fox News Channel. Uh, that, you know, is loved and hated. And I'm a fly on the wall for a lot of these, uh, you know, behind the scenes in a technical perspective. I started as a teleprompter there, prompting, and then I became an A2 where I put the microphones on people. Uh, so I've worked on all these shows. I know all these people almost intimately. So it's very funny sometimes having to step back and either be criticized because I work there and just, you know, just shut my mouth or whatever. And I'm like not even talking politics or I see 
movies like Bombshell, where there's a kid in it who's portraying me. In the movie, there's a guy sound guy, <laughs> and that's me because I'm in Megyn Kelly's book. And you know, people sometimes get even mad that I bring this up. I don't know. There's sometimes the the, the toxicity of politics is so you know uh, egregious nowadays that people will just turn it off just because of that. You have a mere association. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to this show. I like having people from left, right, and center on, and I've definitely, I mean, probably more people come on who are left of center than right of center, but it's like, I feel like in an era of heightened political, like, adversarial stances, I try to make both my YouTube channel and my uh, podcast a place of, like, calm and rationality where a love of film transcends everything, like, when it comes to, like, in my personal life, what's more important to me? Like my love of great storytelling versus my personal politics. I'd put my love of storytelling at a 10 and my interest in politics at like a two or a three. So I have no I problem whatsoever. I, I have friends and family members who are left, right, and center. And that's always been that way. And it always will be that way. And I think because I've spent my adult life in LA and New York, obviously I, I work just fine with folks who are left of center. But I grew up in North Carolina, Virginia. And yeah, yeah. guess what? They're not all, you know, fucking, uh, who's that... Um, uh, I was about to try to remember the, who's the name of that famous Marxist who's like 90 years old now and they've had like documentaries about Chomsky? Him, but, yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, not everybody from this state says Noam Chomsky. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's the thing. It's just I don't – I never talk politics. I try to stay – even when people are yelling at me about it, uh, I still try to stay very – you know, I am I grew up with – you know, you go to somebody's house, you don't talk politics, you don't talk religion. And we've, money. We've Those are the three to, big ones. I, I, I had the yeah. exact same background. You don't discuss income. You don't discuss religion. You don't discuss politics. And guess what? Everybody got along a hell of a lot better. So it's a weird old-fashioned rule. But in the 90s, my friends and I in college, even though an election took place, I don't think we discussed politics one time in four years. We discussed I like Rolling agree. Stones yeah. and Pretty Girls it's, or movies. It's really – yeah, that's really weird. I um on Saturday night movie sleepovers we made it an edict really early on where we won't talk, we won't bring up politics at all, and that was actually one of my big things was I don't want to I don't want to be political on anything. We could talk about maybe if we do a movie and how it maybe have been viewed, but I I tried to that was one of my things is I do not want to uh, you know have a political leaning on it because I want I my I I take the old Johnny Carson stance. I say why do you want to. Um, you know, piss off 50% of your audience, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to take a stance one way or the other per se. Well, if I'm discussing a political movie, like say Otto Preminger's classic film, Advise to Consent, which is one of my favorite movies about DC, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Sure. Then I'm happy to discuss it in the context of the movie, but I find that more often than not, if you want nothing but politics all day, every day, there's plenty of podcasts, plenty of YouTube channels, plenty of like websites. Exactly. You can get, you can have it, you can mainline it through an IV all goddamn day, but I often find because as I try to put myself in the position of the consumer, people do want to fucking break. Like people want to be able to go get a steak and not have to hear the entire political history of the animal that they're eating. Like they want to be able to have a, a, an escape from it. And so I try to make Wrong Real and as well as my YouTube channel a nice, just easy, relaxing, like comfort food escape from all the fucking anarchy of uh, of our present moment. The problem with me is, and this is something I don't really divulge to anybody, but since it's just you and me talking and no one else is listening, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, is that um, for years, because of where I worked, I would get shit all the time. So I would always be cast at the forefront when people would meet me, bring it up. And it's funny because there is a huge hypocrisy where if I worked anyplace else, nobody would care. You know what I mean? But because of where we live in, in, in the region of the of the country and people have certain political leanings that learn to uh, lean a certain way, uh, anytime it would come up, 
80% I mean, you're from fucking the New time. Haven, the heart of Yale. I mean, Yale, Yale and Fox yeah. News, they don't have a lot of overlap. About 60 years ago or 70 years ago into the early, late 40s or so, uh, it did. Oh, my, my grandfather was a Yale grad. And my grandfather, let's just say, was, was not a Noam Chomsky type. If anything, he was the polar opposite. But my grandfather grew up in um, Bronxville, New York, but went to Yale. That's and- right. That's where I currently live is Bronxville. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Bronxville is killer. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's yeah. a nice small town. So he went to Bronxville High and all that stuff. And uh, but yeah, then oh, he eventually wow. he eventually moved uh, down to Virginia where he met my grandmother, had my mother, so on and so forth. But yeah, but Yale in the '40s was like George Herbert Walker Bush character. But I don't want to get too yeah, or off Prescott, the beaten track about uh, Yale and Fox News. Yeah. So sorry. So so I I ended up getting a job in Fox uh, uh, early on. I've been there for so long. But then my other thing was I wanted to keep pursuing. That was a great day job, great made a great income, but I wanted to keep pursuing my other, I didn't want to get stuck like a lot of people do is they get a job and then they get complacent. Then all of a sudden they hit 50 and they're like, where have I been? So I, on my off time, I kept pressing, trying to, my goal was to either act and direct and film. So I wrote two screenplays, uh, Blood in the Streets and uh, Morris P.I., this other one. And then since I couldn't get any tracking with them, one of the uh, hosts years later in 2011 said, why don't you turn them into books? And you might have a better chance of getting them made. So I did that. And then in 2018, so it, well, that was a 15-year journey, I got my first screenplay turned into a book, Blood in the Streets, which takes place in New Haven, which is basically an homage to um, Bullet and Dirty Harry and 70s Cops, which is what we talked about the first time I was on. Absolutely. Wrong real. And I've got some questions on that front toward the end of this recording that I think you will okay. enjoy. Because it seems like whether you're talking about movies like Smoking the Bandit or movies like the seven ups or whatever, like just the seventies was the great heyday of car stunts and movies. And so anyway, we'll we'll get to that in a bit because the reason we're here today is to talk about your, I guess, co-starring role in this movie, Stand On It, which is a a loving homage to Smokey and the Bandit. We bet that you can't drive to Austin, pick up 400 cases of Yeller Local and have it all back here within 24 hours. That was a movie, and in the movie, it was 28 hours. Got yourself a deal. Pilot, fill my thermos. Let's haul ass. Got the one and only Frosty the you-know-what here, Duke boy. Come on, son, we're burning daylight. We got to get back, win the bet, collect the money. So stand on it, son. Can't you run a red light in my town? He is very good. You are really bad. You know the back of his truck says ROI. The name is Roy and I like to drive. Get in, why don't you? Oh, you're cute. You're young. You got something I want. And I'll chase you to hell and gone to get it back. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. I like to drive. You're driving me crazy, son. So, the reason we're here today is to discuss your co-starring role in the film Stand On It, directed by John Schneider, who people will probably know better as Bo Duke from The Dukes of Hazard. He's also people uh, younger will know him from Smallville. He's the he's um, Clark he plays, Kent's he father. Plays, he plays Pa Kent from uh, yes. Smallville, opposite. Uh, was it uh, Annette O'Toole or what? What's the name of that? Yeah, somebody very recognizable. The, red, the redhead who I'm obsessed with from uh, from Cat People and It. In any event, yes. you play the. 
I guess the equivalent of like the son of Buford T. Justice from the original, <laughs> uh, the original Smokey and the Bandit. How the hell did you get uh, recruited or cast in this flick? Um, it's because of where I work in my day job. I became friendly with um, one of the uh, uh, talking heads there, the, the wrestler Tyrus. And he has gotten a regular gig there. He's on the Great Gutfeld show weekly. So him and I sparked up a friendship in the green room of just us BSing before time. Uh, you know, when I'm putting this mic on them and I'm getting because a lot of times I have to put equipment on people and it's uncomfortable if I'm touching your back and I'm putting, you know, microphone packs or IFBs, which are the thing you hear with on the backside of somebody. So you you break the ice and talk to people. And, you know, that was the joke with Megan Kelly. She used to say the only two people who know in me intimately are my husband and Dion because I'd have to like unzip. I have to, you know, I'm like, so you do any fishing, you know, and I'm like put it on their bra strap and stuff. So, you know, you develop a dialogue with these people on a level of trust and tyrus and i hit it off and i think we actually hit it off i was making a smoky and the bandit reference and he picked up on it he said is that a and i said yeah and i was like well this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship and then him and i would just throw back and forth smoky and the bandit lines like really obscure ones you know and then it got to that he was drafted by john schneider to be in the movie and he landed the role of the Jackie Gleason Buford T. Justice, which in this movie, it's called Sheriff Buford T. Necessary. No, I'm sorry, Cletus T. Necessary. And then they were looking for somebody to co-star with him. And he knew me and he knew I wrote a book and I had all these. And I, and I also, uh, for the past nine, eight or nine years, I've gone on Fox on air and been on like uh, panels, just young people's panels talking about what's going on in, you know, light topics like lighthearted topics of the day. So he he said, you know, he suggested to Schneider and uh, Schneider looked at my material and said, yes. And it's the biggest, craziest thing in the world that, um, you know, I went to jury duty down in Manhattan one February, cold February day. And I had to leave my phone at home. And uh, when I, you know, cause you can't take it in with jury and I was there all day and I get home, I turn my phone on and I've got a text from John Schneider asking me to be in this movie. And it's a, an homage, a pastiche, a tribute to the 1977 Smokey and the Bandit, so much so that it even almost mirrors Smokey and the Bandit. You know, it's it's, it's yeah, and it's like a it's a meta film because they're constantly saying, oh, well, this is the part where I say this, oh, this is the part where yeah, you say it's almost this. breaking the first yeah, it's breaking the fourth wall where he's almost playing himself in it, kind of a washed up or or uh, and not washed up, but I guess like, like Cowboys an Never Get Old, but yeah, but and there's yeah, a lot yeah, of fabulous you know, song, yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of Dukes of Hazard references in there as well, so it's like a, it's a weird thing where it's like almost like a love song to the, I guess his background as a performer. And he worked what one day on smoking the bandit years before he ever got cast in Dukes of Hazzard. Yeah. He, uh, he was in high school. He skipped a day cause they were filming. They filmed it all around. Uh, he's from Westchester County. And then he, when in his mid teens moved down to Georgia with it, cause I, th I think his mom worked for IBM and he skipped a day of high school because they were shooting and he, he hopped the fence and got on set and, just the security, he saw a security guard and he BS'd his way on saying, hey, where's hair and makeup? I'm late. And the guy's like, oh, over there, got hair and makeup, got on set. And then he sat next to Jackie Gleason all day. And because he, John Schneider, was from Alkisco, New York. And at the time, Gleason had a house in Peekskill, which was about 20 minutes away. They BS'd the whole day about Westchester and the different bars in the area. So by the end of the day, they didn't know what to do with Schneider. So he's in the last shot. When you, <clears throat> when you see... 
uh, Jackie Gleason's character turn the car around to go ch- give that one last chase and the wheel comes off. If you watch where the wheel goes into the crowd, there's a, a guy with blonde hair with a hat on and maybe like a jean jacket. That's Schneider. And then the their movie freezes and it's a freeze frame. That's that's Schneider there in his his one stand in role. And then two years or Jesus, a year later, maybe he lands uh, Dukes of Hazard, which, you know, I don't know if people now really understand how big Dukes of Hazard was, was as, a child. as a little kid before I could even yeah. really walk or talk. The big double feature I would always watch back to back. Hulk and Dukes of Hazard. They they played back to back. And so yeah. in my mind, I can't disentangle the two. I was really into I was never really into like like country culture or car culture or anything like that. But for whatever reason, yeah. that opening <clears throat> fucking song was so catchy and the show was just so charming. Yeah, so I, I before long before the days of cable, Hulk and Dukes of Hazard Dukes of Hazard was a was a big part of my life. Yeah, and and, and there was a um a, there was a uh a reason there for the for the programming of it. I forget which was first. Was which was was Hulk on before Duke? I believe was, Hulk was on first because that's what like, I would just stick around. But once again, we're talking about memories that are forty yeah. years in the past. And there and I forget because then it was I forget the TV lineup. But I've heard Schneider talk about this where it was like you know they knew the family would be sitting down to watch say the Hulk together. They kept them there with Duke because it was a family show. And then. The kids would go to bed, and like I think Dynasty would come on, or da- I forget what was on next. I think but it was, that Dallas, was like the TV because I, yeah, I, I got little yeah. tiny taste of Dallas as a kid, and I don't even know why. It would only make sense because I'm stuck there already watching these other two shows that I love, and it would run right into it. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's just surreal for me because I have memories of being, you know, fairly young watching Chips, watching these shows. These were huge in our, and, and like you said, I, I was not a big country. I mean, I knew Jerry Reed. And in Smokey and the Bandit was always on TV. Smokey and the Bandit one, two, and three when I was little. Um, yeah, and Cannibal Run was huge. Like uh, it was Cannibal just the Run era was huge of, yeah. of car shows and car movies. And obviously, Hal Needham was a huge part of that. And I did a big episode about Director Hal Needham with Moose Madsen, yeah. I guess, last summer, where we talked about Smokey and the Bandit. And uh, is it Hooper or Hopper? I always fuck up the pronunciation. Uh, Hooper. Hooper. And then we also talked about yeah. Cannibal Run. Gator. But he was a, he a large did... part of kind of defining. This well, era. he was a stunt. Yeah, he's basically if you watch Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, that's the relationship. Yeah, he's kind of like yeah, it's Burt Reynolds yeah, the, and, uh, and and Hal Needham had the, a similar relationship. And also, people need to remember, Smoking the Bandit was not some weird niche rural phenomenon. It was the number two movie of the year behind Star Wars. Like it was yeah, and mainstream entertainment. Yeah. And it and it's this and P, there's people who don't care at all for Smoking the Bandit and you know it's one of these things where you know I I when you rewatch something like Cannibal Run that might be a little harder of a watch because you know you have to realize the context of how fun it is while they're making these movies and sometimes the best part of those kind of movies are just watching the outtakes at the end but certainly the oh, first one Dom DeLuise the cracking up with Burt oh, Reynolds yeah. in the outtakes is fucking adorable. Yeah, Captain Chaos and all that stuff and him could have did it you know it's like or like um. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, he's like, next time Methodists, because they're dressed up as Catholic priests with the girls and all that. But that was huge in the early 70s. And in, and then trucking and convoy and, and CB radios and Smokey and the Band had opened this door to the CB radio craze of um, that went into like Dukes of Hazard and Convoy and those truck movies of the, of the late even 70s. Even Sam Peckinpah, you mentioned Convoy, Sam Peckinpah, even he was getting in on the action. It's like, 
And that actually, I think Convoy was actually his biggest commercial hit he ever had, like even more so than like the fucking Getaway and the Wild Bunch, which is just absurd. But and that's the movie that got Eileen McGraw. They divorced her and Steve McQueen because Steve McQueen said, "I don't this. You're this is I don't. I forget what Steve McQueen said, but he says if you do this movie, I'll dump you." And she went and did it. And I don't know if it was jealousy or if well, Chris Christopherson was a total stud, and Steve McQueen was a total stud. And, yeah, and I she mean, knew that he wasn't be going for Ernest Borgnine. Also, it's like. Allie McGraw got together with Steve McQueen by going to make the getaway with him when she was involved with Robert Evans, who's one of the guys who's running Paramount. And then that brings us back to stand on at the movie I'm in because um, John Schneider's wife is Alicia Allen. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A-L-L-A-I-N. Uh, she was is uh, was the uh, pinnacle in getting the kid stays in the picture made gotcha. because she was close to Robert Evans. So she got the kid, uh, the kid stays in the picture made that really profound documentary in 2001 or two. I, that I hate to say that something so cliche, but the book is better. The, and and it, I think it's one of yeah. the great Hollywood memoirs. And I had the cassettes with Robert Evans reading it himself in the late 90s. Wow. And when I was yeah. first working in L.A. summer 97, I would just play the kid stays in the picture on a loop. And it's riveting. Yeah. But the documentary was the first time I'd ever seen how they did those um you know the pictures moving, the the two dimensional pictures moving in a, which seems quite cliched now. You see it all I mean, the time. I mean, for a documentary, it did very yeah. well when it came out. And then she also did Autofocus, which is the Greg Kinnear movie biopic on uh, Bob Crane. Yeah, Paul yeah, Schrader, yeah exactly. Yeah. And she's yeah, she's close to Paul Schrader, so she was a producer in the world, and they they married um, a couple years ago, and they've done a, a bunch of movies together, and so that comes back to first full circle of Robert Evans and Steve McQueen, Convoy, so. Those movies were huge growing up. And then also, I mean, in the early 70s, you had, you know, uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. You had Vanishing Point. You had um, the original Gone in 60 Seconds. Yeah. H. It was H.P. Halicki, the, the the director, writer of the original Gone in 60 Seconds. Yeah, like two which I think Blacktop and The Driver and all, all kinds of Yeah, oh, Walter Hill is The Driver, which yeah. is such a phenomenal movie that a lot of people don't know, which is almost like was semi-remade with Drive in 2010 or 11. Um, and you don't see, uh, you know, you're seeing now, you know, a reinsurgence with the Gone in 60 Seconds movies. Um, the for Fast those and Furious movies, yeah, yeah, I'm, yes, yes, I'm sorry. The Fast and the Furious movies where, you know, there's a whole slew of them. And then they had Drive was made, which is kind of the equivalent of Driver. And then they remade Gone in 60 Seconds, which I guess now is going on. Jesus. 20 years. 20 years ago. Yeah. That crazy. <laughs> to me, it seems like it was last week. Um, and then especially with all these Fast and the Furious movies, which I'm, I hate to admit, but I haven't. I've never seen one of them. Just I never got into them. People tell me you'll love them once you, you know. The early ones are much more like the movies you're describing where it's basically about people drag racing for pink slips. As they get deeper into the franchise, they become more like Avengers movies where they all have like, you know, crazy technology and they're saving the world. Yeah. It's a weird thing where the franchise has evolved and changed so much and gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, but I can't think of a, of a franchise that's changed as much as that. But you mentioned something earlier about how like a movie like Cannonball Run, how like the real appeal of it is thinking about how much fun they must have had while making it. Let me turn the same question to you while you're making Stand On It. Irrespective of how people respond to the, the final film, it seems like this is one of those movies where the making of must have been a hoot and a half. So give me some down and dirty war stories, because as you mentioned to me when we were shooting A Hobo with the High Kick, you got uh, you had a bone breaking incident in the process of making this flick. I did, I did. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, John and his wife, a hundred percent independently financed this movie. We did it on a super, super shoestring budget, and you know, 
it, it, that's um, amazing in its own part, making your own film, getting it done, and getting yeah, the original Smokey was three million, but like one million went to Burt. Yeah, exactly. And then they're also doing live action stuff where they're doing they're going 100 miles an hour, you know, down the highways and everyone's driving. And it was back in the day where you couldn't green screen or you could you could do rear screen projection, but it would look horrible, you know. And then with COVID happening as well, too, while we were filming, stuff was restricted. So, you know, there are some limitations when you watch the finished product of the movie, which can't be helped because on the other side of that, you have to realize that this was 100 percent, you know, John directed it, wrote it produced it with his wife and he stars in it. And this was his love letter because he became very good friends with the director, um, Hal Needham of Smokey and the Bandit and of Burt Reynolds. And um, this was his love letter to, he always wanted to, you know, the, the people, there was the, it was, it's, it, it's incalculable to try to sum up how huge Smokey and the Bandit was. And the, like you said, biggest movie of 1977 aside from Star Wars. And they're like polar opposites where one half of the, we're going to the space with Moonraker and all those other movies where the other half were, you know, it's just and these. And also Smokey these... start, it became a success in small towns. Whereas when they tried to open it in New York, it was a disaster. But it, that's Correct. one of those movies. Same way, like Russ Meyer was able to become independently wealthy by playing movies like Vixens and driving theaters for like, you know, year in and year out. There was just a different market, and market segmentation is a real thing. I took economics classes in business school, and you can segment a market as much as you like, but when you completely overlook and neglect certain segments of that market, it creates these massive opportunities where when a movie finally comes along that serves that market, they show up in droves. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, I, I went down there in, in, in the beginning of March, right before everything uh, blew up, and we and it was just amazing going down there and just meeting John Schneider because it's freaking John Schneider. And again, I don't Fucking know if people Bo can Duke, realize, man. but yeah, it's like it's like meeting Han Solo. I mean, this guy is of legend, and he's a really sweet, nice. I mean, like I text him and we chat, and it's like, oh my god, it's John. Sch and then we talk movies, and he's had a. 40 plus year career in the business so he has these insane stories he lived with johnny cash you know he did these movies uh you know he was on seven seasons or six seasons of dukes of hazard so the you know the b-list uh character actors who come in and out or the directors he had a connection with that so i can bring up jackie lamb again and he'll say oh yeah he was on an episode of duke and it's like you know and and he's as much of a cinemaphile as you and i so i immediately attached to him that he was one that he's he's like he said he was from westchester and he said if 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 um the the uh serendipitous uh audition for dukes of hazard if he didn't get that role he was going to go to purchase for acting in film because uh, he was looking at that because he was in westchester I was like oh that's where i went you know i graduated from there but also it's just that he has his immediate love for film so I was able to talk to him and he's interested in talking. So we would spend hours just, he's telling me these stories about this. You know, I worked with this guy or that, or, oh, geez. And it's just, you know, 40 years of, of, of being in Hollywood. You, he has a story for everybody. And that's, it's literally amazing. You know, you can just, it's almost like a, you can have like a, it's a board game where you're like just throwing names out at him and he'll be like, yeah, oh yeah, I did. Yeah. I worked with, I took a train with him or, oh, he punched me in the face one day. So the stories there are endless and how amazing and friendly and, and nice he is. I'll never forget the, I think it was my third year in college when Dukes of Hazard came back to TV and had been off TV for like 12 or 13 years. And my friends and I, who we could barely remember the show because we saw when we were little kids, we're like, we are having a fucking party. We're going to watch the first episode of Dukes of Hazard ever. And does to see what see what the phenomenon's all about. And like one of the very first scenes is between him and Daisy, 
And he's like, you realize that if we weren't cousins, we probably would have gotten married? He's like, well, it wouldn't have been the first time in our family. And I was, I mean, we just started laughing our asses off. And then he basically has almost the exact same line here in Stand On It when you see uh, the character well, that, played. See, you're, you're, that's funny. You, you, you're picking up on He's throwing all this in yeah, it's, because it's, a, lot a lot of his of, uh, audience. Intertextuality. Yeah, and, and, and it takes a learned person to actually pick up on those subtle references that people may blow through. There's there's actual – there's dozens of references to Smoking the Bandit. But there are a couple of references to D- Dukes directly, and that's one of the, the references to Dukes. And I think that um, – that scene is with Jason Kirkpatrick, who I've become friendly with, who's also a phenomenal actor who was in he's been in Walking Dead. He was one of the the, the highwaymen. He's also um, he is in Tales from the Hood, Two. He sadly kills Emmett Till in Tales from the Hood, Two. Uh, he's in um, uh, what's the what's the oil movie with Mark Wahlberg about the oil Derek. I didn't see it, but it's one of those ones like who, it's that same director who makes all the same movies with him who made like uh, like. Uh, Lone, like yes. Lone Survivor, and uh, he was the like, he played the bat one like kind of the schmuck in uh, Last Seduction. Uh, what the hell is that guy's name? Yeah, it's that director. He made a movie about the uh, oh god, it's about the oil derrick explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. So um, he, uh, Jason Kirkpatrick's in that, and he's also in Two Guns, which I think is that Peter Berg is the uh, director you're thinking of. Yes, uh, and Peter Berg and Mark uh, Wahlberg definitely have like a brand of a certain style of storytelling that they do, and I very rarely see their movies. But once again, it's an underserved market. They know there's an audience out there that loves that kind of shit, and they they just keep making those movies. Deepwater Horizon is the name of the movie. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, so Jason Kirkpatrick's in that, and he's in a bunch of stuff, and he's this great guy, so he cameos in it. And that's the thing too. There's a bunch of cameos in Stand on It, where like the beginning, the narrator. At the festivals, Johnny Lee and Johnny Lee is the um, the famous country singer who wrote um, the uh, uh, what's the name of that song that uh, blah, blah, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, it's uh, and Byron Cherry, who is the stand in for that one season when Dukes, they I love left how the you air said the nub instead of love the same because that's yeah. how uh, Eddie Murphy sang it as Buckwheat on SNL. Welcome oh, that up. was the that's what I was going for there. Yeah. Look, looking for nub and all the yeah, I was doing my oh Buckwheat man, the, um, it, once again, um, an era of uh, that was less sensitive than uh, 2021, but goddamn, Eddie Murphy was just on fire back then. Yes, it was. It was. It was uh, legendary, and it, don't even get me started on yeah the era we're in now. Uh, but there's so many. There's so many cameos in Stand on It, and uh, the other Bring It Back to Fast and the Furious. Uh, Jack Gill, the legendary stunt driver who's married to Morgan Brittany, who um, is uh, was huge. I for, oh, she was on maybe Dynasty. I forget what she was on in in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, but I know her through work because she used to come to Fox a lot. So Jack Gill is this legendary stunt driver who used to, he, you know, did Dukes of Hazard, did Knight Rider. He's the T-1000 in Terminator 2 who's driving the bike up the stairs gotcha. and drives the bike out the window onto the helicopter. Uh, he's in scores of stuff. And his company was the company that they brought in when they rebooted Fast and the Furious after one of them that flopped. When they almost lost the franchise. Yeah, the franchise you know, got the, rebooted. I think the third one, um, which had none of the familiar cast until the very last scene, which now is like the hipster favorite, but it was not as popular. But then it was like not, Tokyo number, Drift or something. Yeah, but then that, number five, yeah. Fast Five, was like the big comeback, which was a monster runaway success, and they basically have been going that direction ever since. 
So I think he did five through seven, his company, Jack Gill. So he's this amazing stunt guy. Uh, he's a driver and all that kind of a thing. And he would, you know, the, he's the guy who jumped the General Lee over all this stuff. Um, you had him. You had another actor named uh, stunt guy named Ted Barba, who most recently was doing the he was the stand in for Scott Bakula on NCIS New Orleans. But he's a stunt guy who was jumping out of the plane in um, with Patrick Swayze and um, Gary Busey and um, the, what's the movie with uh, Keanu Reeves? Yeah. Yes. He's that. So he's that stunt man who's doing all that stuff. Actually, and then Gary Busey third... never jumps out of the plane in that. Gary B- Busey jumps out of a plane yeah, 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 in Drop Zone the... with Wesley Snipes, which is a very different movie. But, I, I, but I'm familiar with that film. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Busey, the Buse never got off the ground in, um, in Point Break. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's another guy, Lance Turner, who's the stunt man who drove the General Lee over a barn. They just filled it with nit- nitrous and drove it. Tra- I mean, they wrecked 330 chargers. Uh, you know, they have to wreck a charger an episode. Uh, and people get mad nowadays, like, you know, how dare you wreck so many chargers? But at the time, you know, they were, I think, 300,000 chargers, 69 chargers were, you know, were crapped out, you know. So at the time, it was okay. Also, they would like, they would gut these things and they would remove everything that didn't need to be in there. And I, I don't know how many ones that they destroyed in yeah, the original like, Gone in 60 cadence. Seconds, but they destroyed like 750 cars over the course of the course. I mean, I think it's like the, the world well, record holder. The original for- Gone is. The original gone in 60 seconds. He's almost killed the HP Halicki. There's a scene that they kept in the movie where he broke his back. He kind of, yeah, he's on the highway and he kind of spins out, and either the front or the back of the car hits a street light and it comes down on the car and he lost consciousness. And they kept that in the movie because it's so horrific. It looks like somebody died. So, um, well, let's talk about your own injury. We, I, we, I, we yeah, asked you so about it earlier. That's why I was bringing all this up. I'm sorry. No, so it's, it's, it's all, it's all good stuff because I feel like people forget. I want to put a lot more love and affection or emphasis on stunt people. Like recently we had uh, Steve Kepfer on who was the stunt coordinator on Hobo. And we were just talking sure. about his favorite, uh, favorite movies and favorite stunts. And I just feel like people talk about cinematography and they talk about writing and they talk about directing and acting, but stunts are an essential part of film and television history. And so I'm always down on shining a light on all these kind of forgotten legends. Yeah, especially prior to the Vic Morrow tragedy where uh, he was killed on the toilets on the movie set. Prior to that, leading up to that, you had, uh, you know, it was getting out. People even could say it was going, it was getting, going off the rails, getting the proverbial rails. Yeah. yeah, what they were doing in the late 70s into the 80s when all these guys are around. And these are the guys that now have all metal in their bodies because all they would do is jump and come yeah, down. They're and like fucking Wolverine and, with like adamantium yeah, skeletons. <laughs> because of just how beat up and, you know, back then it was, you know, they, they were just learning on the job training. So my point of bringing this all up, they were all around helping film this movie because all this the 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 challenger that uh schneider made to look like the trans am they cut a t-top with a sawzall into the challenger painted it the right way to make it look like the old trans am they were doing a lot i mean john does a lot of his driving and john did one of the stunt scenes where two of the crown vicks go into the lake john was driving one of them but in that's one of the significant things of stand on it where some scenes you know it looks like low budget but the other scenes that they he they literally jumped a challenger hellcat over the tickfall river uh in louisiana and did it you know practically that's no green screen that's insane nowadays you don't see that anymore especially for a low budget movie so because of all this stunt stuff going around and car stuff 
and then the you know the the crown Vicks we had and you got John the fever. You start, had, you start getting the itch. Yes, that's what that's what's the problem. I have the fever. You yeah. know, and, yeah, and, and people start telling stories, and you're like, well, I want to have my own stories. To, to, yeah, to and I've always been a physical guy. Going back to those movies we were talking about at the head of the podcast, I was making at stunt uh, at film stunt school. At film school, I was the guy who'd get hit by a car for a project. I'd fall down a flight of stairs. I was always the stunt double. Um, so uh, because of that, now. I started doing physical stuff on set. I'd get up on the hood of the car, fall. You know, if you know Smoking the Bandit, by the time in that movie you lose the top of the police car, you lose the door of the police car. So there's a lot of physicality in that stuff. So I'm getting up, jumping, you know, trying to do stuff to really make the role funny and make people laugh. So, you know, it gets to the point where I'm surrounded by these stunt guys. And there's this scene near the end of the movie where Jack Gill is driving the crown Vic and he's going to just speed in at the end of the movie and miss a car and, you know, kind of, you know, he comes into a turn and stops quick. And I said, yeah, I'll be in the car with him because I want to do a, I want to be in a scene with. So it's just like, you want to, OK, let's go. Let's do it. So it turns into then. Uh, we do the take a couple times. And I said, you know what, I'll get up and I'll run out of the car. But since the car has no roof. I'm getting up and just jumping over the hood or over the the, the 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 front and walking over the hood, running out. So we do the scene about a half a dozen times. And that's when I'm sitting there with Jack Hill, like, so, you know, interviewing him like you are now. Like, so what movies have you been into? Wow. What else have you done? You were the T-1000. Of course I know what Terminator 2 is, you know. So we do the scene about 15 times, uh, just getting everything right. We start filming and it starts drizzling a little bit. And in between takes, the, the car got kind of wet and I'm in cowboy boots. So the one of the takes I do, I get up, I jump over the, the I go over the front of the car. And as I come off the car, I came off kind of head first and I couldn't kind of recompensate. And I just rolled and came out of it, but I separated my collarbone. So I ended up separating my collarbone in front of all these stunt guys. So I got up, finished the scene, didn't tell anybody, and then did the scene like two or three more times. And then finally mm -hmm. told somebody, like, I think I did something. And then, you know, I had to go to the hospital and it was I separated my collarbone. But it ended up being fine and it was just funny because, you know, you get that adrenaline and you're around all these legends. You're like, I'm going to do that. If John's doing all his stuff and That's he's jumping into a saying, week, Hey, man, hold my beer. You know, like, <laughs> we did all these famous last words. <laughs> the night before, my wife, I'm telling her I'm doing all this physicality and I'm really excited. And then there's one scene, the first scene of the movie where they introduced me. I roll over a car like an idiot. And I had to do that like 15 times because we're making fun of the slide they used to do in Dukes of Hazzard. Like one of the earliest scenes, you're trying to do the slide, but you're you're not quite up just, to yeah. level. And it was something Tyrus and I, a lot of our dialogue, we improv right on the spot. So they just left the camera rolling. And some of the funniest things we just say are just. Did you come up with the Tom Jones Thunderball line? Because my favorite line in the whole movie by far, which actually made me fucking scream with laughter. I had to rewind it is when you're you're getting a lecture about how you're going to be expected to perform on your wedding night and impress your, your wife with your sex appeal. And you're like, you mean like Tom Jones? Thunderball, and Thunderball? You mean, like you're watching TV, yeah. you're watching just a, a, a burning fire on the on the TV, like like logs, like a fireplace. But I just started cracking up. So where where did that line come from? That was me. Nice. And then and then that's why. And then we were rehearsing it, and Schneider's like Thunderball, and I go, yeah, because that's he did the button. He's like, okay. And then I said to him, so at the very end of that scene, he cut it, but I was gonna start practicing singing. So my first thing was, you know, you can't really sing Thunderball, so I was gonna sing. Um, that's a hard one. To John's sing. first. Yeah, yeah, don't pick yeah, Thunderball in karaoke. <laughs> No, John's first breakout, because he's also a singer, songwriter, and established kind of country artist, his breakout song was the It's Now or Never. So in the first take, I was like, it's now or... But I don't know how much you can sing without it being copyright infringement. So I did that, and he goes, actually, do Delilah. So, you know, I was like, Delilah, you know, and then he ended up cutting it. But yes, that was my 
uh, improv, and then I improv another very obscure reference in the movie where I get a, I put a, um, a garter around my head and then it ends up going over my eye and I go, look, dad, I'm John Wayne. I'm the Duke A number one. So I'm conflating escape from New York. Cause that's the Duke and, you know, and John Wayne and, uh, you know, it can get some laughs, but a lot of the stuff we did was a, a very improvisational. So getting back to how I injured myself, um, I was going over this car 15 or 16 times. And when I got home, I was telling my wife, I ended up getting bruising on my hips. And my wife's like, Dion, you're not 16 or 20 anymore. You're, you know, you got to remember you're not a kid. And I was like, Oh honey, come on, I can do stuff. And then the next day I go and separate my collarbone. So I said to her, you know, you're kind of right, but it's like, you get that itch to, you know, you want to be young again. You want to, you can't just shake it off because you're you know, 20 years well, also, later. It's just know? a practical so, consideration as well. When we were shooting hobo and moose was game for anything, but moose, I think he's 50 or 51, but we were shooting just the rehearsal over and over and over again, where Stephen Kepfer keeps throwing them and he keeps rolling yeah. and rolling and rolling. And like every third take, I noticed Moose is just like in between, just rubbing his lower back. And I was like, and it's on a mat too. Yeah. And I'm like, is there something that we need to be aware of where you're not going to be able to do any more takes? Because if so, let's like chill with the rehearsal. Like it's just one of the things where you don't want your star to be out yeah, of commission because yeah. you need him for future shit. And so as somebody who was paying for the damn short, I, I was just acutely aware of the fact that while it's fun in the moment, you got to, we are all mortal. We are all fragile and we need you for additional days. So it's like, yeah, I, I never want to be in a position where I have to like, I guess that's, that's why we have stunt people to, to do all the shit for people so that if they break their goddamn back, you can just still move on and, and keep shooting shit. Yeah. And I, and luckily because of the filming, we had to, sh we shot all our stuff beforehand then COVID shut us down. And then in the summertime when things kind of lightened up, um, John Schneider was having this festival called Bo's Extravaganza that he has every year. And he was going to use that as a side venture to shoot around that, to be able to have the beginning and the end of the movie, like smoking the bandit where you have the crowd because it begins at a race and it ends at a race. And in this and stand on it, it begins at Bo's Extravaganza, it ends at another thing. So for have the people there, he shot around that. So we ended up shooting that the summer, and that was the end of that was the last stuff, and that's the actual when he jumped the challenger over the river because you needed to have everything shot before you destroy the car. And because of Mopar, God bless Mopar, he later on was able to start that puppy right up and it started again. And it's another thing with the Crown Vicks. Well I think they only had like One three or four cars for the entire shoot of Smoking the Bandit. And like on Bullet, I think they only had three Mustangs. Like people they learn to if you fuck up the car, they learn to shoot around it or whatever. But yeah, and these movies didn't have limited limitless resources. Um, a, a good friend of mine, John uh uh uh, uh Randy Jurgensen who is an ex-NYPD uh, homicide detective turned actor who's in, and he had a very prolific career in the 70s and 80s in a lot of movies uh, that were New York-centric, Godfather, The Seven Ups, uh, The French Connection, Cruising, which is actually based on one of his cases. Uh, that, And I've interviewed him significantly. If you go to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, you can hear us talking about all his Hollywood stories and all his stories as a homicide detective in the late 60s and 70s. He was the guy who helped them shoot um, the French Connection the, under the subway. And they had Bill Hickman there, who's a very legendary uh, stunt driver who was the hitman who drives in Bullet. He's the driver in that with the glasses. And then he's also the guy with – he's in the French Connection. He's the FBI agent that ends up getting killed near the end of the movie that comes in. And then he's also in the 7-Ups. He's the guy – he's kind of has longer hair. And he's with Richard Lynch in the car driving that Roy Scheider's chasing him. So Hickman did a lot of the driving in – the 7-Ups, I'm sorry, the French Connection, but so did Randy because Randy was also a, you know, because he was a cop, you, you learn tactical driving when you're a cop. So he got a 
honorary inductee in the Stump Man's Association in the East Coast. He flipped a car, I think, for Vigilante um, or an episode of Kojak. But there's that um, movie Vigilante, the Lustig movie, that there's driving near the end of that. And Randy did all that stuff. So point being is Randy was telling me a story about, you know, actors wanting to do their own stuff and Gene Hackman getting behind the wheel or whatever. I forget what kind of car that is. It was a 1971 Pontiac Le Mans. Yes. And the first take they do, he skids and he broadsides the car against like a, you know, one of the subway posts and it totals the car. Hackman was, well, actually I think Hackman had to go to the hospital and there's a funny story because like Randy's wife accompanied him to the hospital or whatever. And Randy, uh, Hackman ended up being fine, but it stopped production down. They had to get some more cars. So there's always the, the, the worry that Jesus, you know, God forbid, if you, you do any damage, you know, and that's, you see that a lot in movies with continuity of damage on cars before it's there or, you know, or well, why it's there much in on. the chase where like certain with the hit, with the dense materialize and dematerialize. I'm like, well, wait a second. There's some continuity, but the reality was they just were out of cars. So they had to just work with what they got. All right. Well, I've got, I've got some weird questions I've prepared for you. And since we're on the subject of these movies already, and some of these questions, they're going to test your spontaneous screenwriter chops as well as your love and affection for this era. Obviously, 70s and 80s gave us a million kick-ass flicks and shows featuring a lot of crazy motherfuckers doing insane things in cars. So I want you to make some predictions with some fantasy matchmaking. So getting back to Popeye Doyle driving his 1971 Pontiac Le Mans, let's say hypothetically he were racing Bullet in his 1968 Ford Mustang, but they were racing through Brooklyn. Who wins in a fight to the death between Popeye and Bullet? Uh, you're talking about car-wise driving. Who would character win? Character and car like combined. It's the character and the car as as a combo because you can't separate them. I don't know because you know people talk. I should be up on my car knowledge, but people talk about how the Charger, which what was much more faster than the Mustang in the Bullet chase sequence, but there's some suspension disbelief how he's able to catch up with them. So I don't know how the Lamar would actually handle because that's a big car and it has a pretty good engine in it uh, in that day. And Papa um, knows so, the landscape and Bullet does not. Yes, you're right. So I don't know. I mean, I, I would think Bullet would be able to stay on his tail. And, um, you know, I think he's he think he's a lieutenant. Uh, I think he'd be able to, to go after Popeye and keep up with him pretty good and maybe even pit, you know, do a little pit maneuver and turn him around and get him. So I'm going to say in that context that uh, he's able to keep up with him, you know, because he's that good of a driver. Certainly you see that in when he's chasing Bill Hickman and the other guy in, in Bullet. So I'm going to lay my cards on that. Uh, Frank Bullet is able to stick with um, what's it? What's his? I forget. Popeye uh, Doyle. Yeah. Eddie Eddie Popeye Doyle. Yeah. I think it is. Uh, Eddie Egan. You ever uh, pick his name in real life? Yeah, exactly. You know. Oh, there's so many stories. Again, I don't mean to be a plugger, but I do for people who haven't listened to the Randy Jurgensen interviews I did with him because he talks about there's so many side stories while filming that arguing about the poster, shooting a a, a, a suspect in the back with his hands in the air. And Randy saying that would never work in real life. And then, you know, uh, what's his uh, uh, freaking saying? That's the point. It's, it's very good. Well, getting things back to John Schneider, let's say hypothetically, Bo and Luke in their 1969 Dodge Charger, a.k.a. the General Lee, say they were going head to head versus the bandit in his 1976 77 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am hybrid. And they were both competing in the cannonball run. Oh, my gosh. Cannonball. 
who wins between Bo and Luke versus Bandit. And, and, that's, and in case Bandit needs a, a second driver, he's got Bandit 2 or Sally Field in the passenger seat in case he needs So a, Jerry a, Reed, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. People forget in the movie that Bandit, uh, Burt Reynolds' character is actually the driver of the big truck. He does the truck racing, and he just lets his country singer music friend Jerry Reed drive the truck, and he, dri- he drives Blocker in the Trans Am. Um, let's see. I, I would... I don't, I don't know. I think Schneider may hate me, but I think maybe the characters, Bandit versus Bo Duke, I don't know, because Bo was the one who did all the driving um, for the most part. I don't mean to piss off the Tom Wolpat fans in the world. <laughs> you know, the Duke, 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 you know, I'm not. And that's another thing. I haven't revisited Duke's Hazard in I haven't so watched many an years. episode in over 20 years. So I be- Once again, I barely remember it. I saw a little yeah, bit in college, and I saw a little bit as a toddler, and that's my knowledge of Duke's Hazard. The only reason... Back in the day when you you talk about it, it was just out of circulation, and then it finally came back to syndication when you saw it in the late 90s, and it's gone out of syndication for various reasons nowadays. Um, so I, I would I would maybe say the bandit might get, get on him, but I don't. It, it could be a tie, especially with the two of them driving. I don't know if Jerry Reed, who I guess is the bandit in the third movie, uh, he does some pretty good driving as well, uh, but um, I would say if you're going to have the two of them in the car, I don't know if Frog – AKA Sally Field would do that much, but just be able to she get away. She does a little driving, and she she yeah. takes the wheel for a little while. She it's she, kind of she fun. holds her own. It's kind of, yeah, and she just keep she'll keep she'll keep you awake by talking your ear. Yeah, off you the want to jump her, you know exactly, you know. So I I would say that's going to be a proverbial tie uh, if they don't they don't t- completely total their cars when they jump over cricks and rivers. All right, well, this is less of a challenge and more just personal taste, but. I feel like there's there's car movies and there's car shows, and then there's some that have just a grimier, down and dirty, gritty tone. What is the grittiest, grimiest, down and dirty '70s car flick of them all? Like for me, contenders would be Two Lane Blacktop, The Driver, Vanishing Point, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Seven Ups, the original Gone in 60 Seconds. But w- when it comes to like '70s grit. Those movies that are just make you feel almost depressed when you're watching them. Which car movie is the meanest, nastiest of them all? Well, um, just an overall you know, tone. I, I think Bullet does a good job of that, even though it's '60s, because certainly, you know, Lalo Schifrin's soundtrack stops when the chase starts, and I only bring that up because years later, when they do the Seven Ups, they're I think they're actually using the Bullet Mustang sound effects in. He's driving like a Chevy Nova after them, I think. Um, in that movie, um, and they're using that sound, the, those sound effects. Um, I, I would probably say the driver uh, is the Michael Mann equivalent. Back when Walter Hill did that, it's the flashy late seventies neon, a dirty LA kind of environment because everything is clean. It's almost like what you get to with tech noir in Terminator. You know that car chase, but for grit. In like seventies film, where you could see the emulsion and the in the grain, I'd say maybe the original Gone in sixty seconds. You know, I mean, Vanishing Point is on a shoestring budget, and also is uh, Crazy Mary, Dirty Larry, and that's just, it's funny because a lot of these movies I learned from my Beastie Boys listening to. You know, like it, you know, it's like you know, the High Plains Drifter, that song. Um, from Paul's Boutique, named, of course, after the Clint Eastwood movie. They make a lot of references to these. So the first time I heard these were in song references when I went and sought out the movie. Um, So I think it, I think maybe Gone is 60 Seconds or The Driver for me for 70s grit. Totally fair. All right, well, time to put your creative thinking cap back on. From my point of view, every hero or every villain is always, every villain's the hero of their own story. So absolutely, who is the real Jimmy the Rake? And is there anything that Jimmy the Rake wishes to say 
to hobo with the high kick after their fateful confrontation at the end of the uh, the cliffhanger at the end of the film. Is there any unresolved business between the two of y'all, or just something? Now is the, the chance because I feel like that whole movie is mostly from Hobo's point of view. Now's the chance to give Jimmy his point of view. You can't hide from me, Jimmy. Who is you? You killed my friend. Hobo? Did you think I was just gonna let that go? I'm gonna kill you, Hobo. My friend Charlie died like a bitch. Jimmy. Hey everybody, James Hancock here. Quick interruption. I apologize for interrupting this podcast, but I have to share this very important message from the hobo with the high kick himself. Jimmy, Mr. Hancock. Jimmy the Rake. Where is he? Where is he? I see. You like to talk to people, Mr. Hancock. I would guard myself if I were you. Because wherever he walks, only death follows. And that means me. I will find him with or without your help. And when I do, Jimmy, I'm gonna kick him. I'm going to kick him to death. I keep hearing all this stuff, hobo, that you getting through all my men, you coming to get me. Well, you know where I is. I'm at where I'm at, and I'll be where I'll be. You and your hot kick, you're going to take that kick, and you're going to get it stuck someplace where you're going to need an erector set to get it out. Come and get me, hobo. You think you're big time? You're going to die big time, hobo. Come and get me. Thank you for your patience, everybody. Those two characters just would not be denied. But now we return back to our show. Well, I think Jimmy, you know, uh, he had his own little world that he lived in, you know, uh, as mobsters do on your corner or your avenue or whatever. And I think hobo in the best kind of tellings of a, like a John Rambo kind of like leave me alone, but they don't like, uh, was it quite John Kane from, you know, um, uh, Kung Fu legend continues or Kung Fu, the original series where they encroach into that person's air area and then it wreaks havoc. And I feel like hobo, you know, because he was wrong, his friend was killed by Jimmy the rake. He comes in and he just fucks shit up. 
and um you know he completely decimates it's almost like a video game or a game of death where he goes through each level of combat and gets to me and i'm the kareem abdul jabbar you know wearing the big footprint on my uh, on my or no i guess i would be putting the footprint on hobo um on his yellow tracksuit and then it ends in the embrace and I had an idea where, um, you know, our fight probably ends where it's raining and he decimates me, but I'm still alive. And it's almost like um, Shredder from the first Ninja Turtles movie to the second one where he's still alive after the garbage truck death. And I remember when I was little, that was all pretty cool. And I and I envision he takes with me his voice. He, he rips out my voice box. So um, <laughs> and that's my thing is I want my voice back. So I came up with this voice set from like um, Ted uh Ted Danson from Creep Show where he's you know like um let me see if I can do it now and put on to uh, I can't wait you know, um, after he and his wife re- 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 come back from the dead yeah yeah so I'm like I want my voice back oh 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 Oh, dude, but you were you know, making like, me and Bill laugh so goddamn hard on the set when you're doing the, like, like, right, what, what do you know about this hobo with the high kick? And just when we were well, that was the- my, I was channeling my dad. What do you know about this hobo with the high kick? And it was funny because I had borrowed from my friend foreign cigarettes and I hadn't smoked. I, I was a former smoker and I had given up smoking. But the morning of we were doing B-roll, I shotgunned about three on an empty stomach. In a row. I'm surprised you didn't shit yourself. With drinking Red Bull. So when we got <laughs> into we got into the alley, I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, oh my God, I might either throw up or shit my pants. And I'm not a throw up thrower upper. So I was coming I, on I one end or the shit, other. Yeah. Yeah, I don't shit my pants either, but I've had times where it's like IBS where I got to go to, it's like my body hits death com three and it says, you know, we're going to go with you without you. You got 60 seconds to decide. So I felt uh, for about two minutes in the alley that that was going to happen to me, but I just <laughs> breathed through it and listened to your state. Your, your, and then right when we were getting ready to film, I actually got excited because it, the, the feeling had passed and I forgot that nicotine sickness. So um, that actually ended up being pretty fun. And then it was just such a fun shoot. I was trying to get you guys to laugh and, it, it kind of almost got too anti um, – it was blue. It's, uh, it might be even too blue, the jokes we were doing on set, uh, you know, politically incorrect. Oh, and you were like, hobo, I'm going to eat your penis. And like, all, yeah, you're yeah, just, yeah, you, yeah, were, you gonna, were riffing and just making shit up. I'm going to cut your penis off, hobo, and I'm going to eat it, you know. And that was just out of like, what? It's almost like the raging bull. It's like, you fuck my mom, and it's like, what? Yeah. And that's how they get the De Niro reaction instead of the you fuck my wife line. So I was trying to just stay stuff to try to – because – you know, Moose wouldn't break character, so I was like, you know, hope I'm gonna eat, was like, um, hobo with the hack. I was like, I'm gonna eat your eat your penis, hobo. I'm gonna cut <laughs> off your penis, hobo, and then I'm gonna eat it. That ain't gay, you know. It's like all this weird stuff that I was just oh, trying dude, to throw at you was, guys. But I feel like on a set when you're shooting, and granted, it was a short shoot. It was only a couple of days. It's not like anybody had like gotten burned out or anything like that. But you do get tired, and so a, a little levity goes a long way. As long as you're not ruining takes or you know like not getting the shots that you need, but we had light shooting days and I planned it very deliberately because I wanted the enthusiasm and the sense of fun to stay high. And for me, 2020 was a very strange year like it was for everybody, but that was one of the highlights getting together with Bill and Moose and Marcus and Rob and you and Steven. And it was just, it was so much fun just to get the fuck out of the goddamn apartment and stop looking at computer screens or iPhones all goddamn day and do something physical in the streets that's creative and fun. And so, yeah, it was, it was a thrill to get to work with you on Hobo. And I was the, um, I, I was at the tail end, right? Cause you didn't need me every day. So you were the I last was shooting day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah we I went, thought I was the last shooting day. We, we worked with and you that day and then we went back 
think to my place and just started recording a lot of like voiceover narration just with like the wrong real microphones with uh, with Moose. Just as a way of kind of like easing in, having an easy afternoon. And I think, um, uh, you know, oh, I completely lost the track of my thought. Um, the camaraderie on set, breaking the ice, I think is, you know, because I didn't really know, I didn't know, Mo I knew Moose over online, but not physically, you know, I had never he met you guys. You. He, oh, I met you. You. Like, he was like, he, he, well, that's he, another word yeah, of mouth. It's like, you know, he, he, if without him suggesting me, it would never have, I would never have been blessed to be able part to be part of the, the, uh, the I think the, he wrote the, the character with you in mind. So I just assumed you and Moose were really tight, but was he just a fan of, uh, of the podcast or how did y'all know? Yeah. He likes that. I movie sleepovers and him and I would, would, would talk, would started talking and banter and our love for old radio shows and such. So we started mailing each other, snail mailing each other. He sent me some like Lovecraft and Poe on audio, you know, and I sent him, you know, suspense and all these old radio shows. So, and then, uh, and then I guess he, yeah, you guys creating this world, he thought, you know, why not throw me in there? And then it was just like amazing. And I loved how you guys prefaced it with the, you know, uh, took place during the year of the virus. It just, it has it like this, you know, this kind of, um, you know, it almost like this martial arts epicness about it, which is really fun. And then the, that's the other thing too, which is fun. When I was improving on set on stand on it, the best um, kind of um, uh, what's the feedback you can get is when you could see people, you know, like when I was jumping over the car and making myself look like a freaking idiot. And I, I always say it's not I, it's not hard for myself to make myself look like an idiot. I can do it quite well. So it's like doing stuff like that to see John Schneider cracking up and walking away because he's laughing. And then when I was sign. saying this, yeah. yeah, and when I was saying this dumb stuff on set on Hobo with a Hobo with a high kick to you know like that, I'm gonna cut your penis off, Hobo. I'm gonna eat it, Hobo. You know, it's yeah, like well, just I, I've got the emotional maturity of a, of a three year old boy. So uh, yeah, I I was cracking up. So. Yeah. So you guys were laughing. So that was fun. Just kind of the breaking of the ice and the absurdity because Jimmy the Rake's um, weapon of choice was the razor. So the straight razor turned into like, what am I going to do to you? And that was, I'm going to cut your penis off, hobo. I'm going to eat it. I ain't gay, hobo. And then it turns into like this kind of thing where I'm like, you know, it's like, I ain't gay. Fuck you. And it's like, nobody said you were. Anytime someone starts a sentence with, I ain't queer or nothing, but dot, dot, dot. It's like, all right, well, you've got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then that's also none of this made the final cut. So we're talking about stuff that's like, people go back and like, I didn't see that in the movie. It's like, no, this was all about. Yeah, the I mean, it's for YouTube, and YouTube it can be really squeaky clean when it comes to censorship and that sort of thing. So the the whole point of making the short all along was just to ha to have a short to add to my channel. So I, I told Bill's like, look, Absolutely. we can shoot whatever, but in the end, it has to be YouTube friendly. So. Hobo with the high kick. How did it end up doing, right? It went pretty well? I mean, we, we, we sold some posters. We sold some loot. And uh, people seemed to enjoy things. it. And like the, the, the most fun of it was just getting to see Moose Matson bringing this character to life and just giving him a, a platform. But when speaking of the poster, when you first saw what Tony Stella had done in terms of your prominent placement, what, what was your first thought when you saw the Hobo poster? I cried because I had just picked up his reissue. They reissued uh, the Sorcerer, freaking Sorcerer on uh, vinyl. And another movie Randy Jurgensen's connected to is in. He's he's has a prominent role actually in the movie, but he also went down the film. And I talked to I, I'm I'm very much in love with that movie. That kind of now and now is starting to have a resurgence and get the respect it's due. Big time, yeah. Uh, Over the last like five or six years, because they finally yeah undisentangled the legal rights and got it out there again. I saw it theatrically at the film forum when they finally re-released it, but um I waited till I could see it in the theater before seeing it the first time, which the best possible way to go about it. Yeah, I saw it. I, I, I saw it at a special screening at BAM with a uh, 
uh, freaking was there afterward to do a Q&A and they had it like on 11. So it was too loud. And it's like you wanted to go say to somebody like you have it like it's it's almost like the speakers are crackling. Yeah. You know, like and and I went with my wife and she has sensitivity allowed. So she immediately just... as, as soon as yeah, as soon as it started, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be two hours of, you know, but the, finally having it get the reissue and everything. It, it's amazing. So within the year they I think it's like Mondo or somebody reissued it on vinyl or something. And Tony did the artwork on the on the vinyl. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And there was an issue. Yeah, and I, there was an issue with um, my record or the vinyl, so I had to send away for another. So they sent me another. Maybe there was a scratch, so I ended up getting like two or three. So I have two or three of these vinyls, and it looks amazing. And then to find out that he's, you know, he did the the work for Hobo with a high kick. That's I immediately I bought the poster you guys sold. I bought the mini poster you guys sold. It's it's epic looking. You know, it looks almost like the Drew Struzan stuff of the eighties, you know, those epic, when you think of these posters and that was what I said, the Schneider originals, like you should really look into getting a poster done for stand on it. That's kind of like reminiscent of those member of the first Snoke in the well, band. Making the the movie's expensive, concert. but doing a great poster, Very. if you find the right artist, it's not that expensive. Like you can, it's much easier to get a great poster and a low budget movie than it is to, I, I still don't understand yeah. when we see a movie that costs like $200 million and they have some shitty photoshopped, piece of crap yeah. by an intern like the uh, the big one obviously was Spider-Man Homecoming a couple of years ago which just got completely abused online it was everybody's favorite punching bag but it was awful it's like invest just a little bit of money because for me a great movie poster is the first handshake between the potential audience and the movie it's either going to be the trailer or the poster it's the first thing they're going to see and you make a great impression with both you being a learned uh, cinemaphile, isn't it true that a lot of movies would be they would make the poster first, go to con, oh, and show yeah. them the poster, yeah, look, and try I mean, look to at sell the fucking the... Uh, the guys who ran uh, Canon Films. They made tons of posters, yes. would go up and raise the money, and then they'd write the script and shoot, and shoot the movie. Gollum and Globum, um, those, yeah, or like those... a Castle Freak, the Stuart Gordon movie. Like, like this is our poster, this is our name. Now give us a Castle Freak movie. He's like. Okay, well, that's those are two things that I can put together, and I can give you a castle freak. So no some problem. of the some posters nowadays are epic looking, and that, that's you know like growing up, we grew up in an era where you go to a video store, you look at these epic uh, posters on the box art, you know the VHS art, trying to figure out what movie you want to get, and some of that stuff is to this day, you know the. The, the National Lampoon movie where you see him yeah, you know, Chevy the Chase Drew, with the tennis racket with all the muscles yeah and, you know and then the, the you know that the the Indiana Jones movies and Goonies it's like these epic Back to the Futures some of these posters to this day are just so amazing so to to, to have Tony do a poster that in that kind of likeness it's just uh it's it's phenomenal and you know it really brought a tear to my eye I was it was literally amazing well and uh it, I enjoyed the entire experience it was phenomenal yeah we we, we all had a blast well finally question as a filmmaker actor writer storyteller however you want to characterize yourself what is like your five-year plan is it more books more flicks like well, what, what, what if you could you know pick and choose or what what, what is your chief goal because then now we are we are no longer as you mentioned before we are no longer spring chickens and we have to be kind of pick and choose how we use our time how are you going to use your time moving forward uh, that it's a sad realization like that, you know, I, I look at a, a movie like Gone in 60 Seconds, the remake, and I think about that was like two years ago when it was not. 
and all these movies that like you just said spider-man homecoming it's like there's the back half of the marvel movies that i i haven't got to yet and then it's i, I realized oh my god that was six years ago it's like it's fl- time as you get older time flies by and it's the scariest thing and then you know you realize about midlife crises and all that kind of thing and all these existential kind of like almost carl jung kind of like uh i you know ideas about consciousness and all that stuff so um you know there's i've i've sh- striven if that's even a word for this striven, goal for so striven, long striving striving stri- <laughs> i've strived i done strive for a goal for so long that it was almost eating me and my wife at some point said like you know what happens if you don't get what you want and like you know people are comfortable i have a day job that's phenomenal that you know that i make fabulous you know you know i have a great great benefits uh, you know it's it's comfy but that's not where my passion is. So I'm hoping yeah, the velvet I, coffin of a still... high paying job can be a, a big trap. If your goals are more, it all depends on what you want, but like a lot of animators, they'll go to work for these big studios. What they really yeah. want is to be Ralph Bakshi or Tex Avery, but they fall into the velvet coffin where they just are a compositor for the rest of their life. And they have that. Yeah. Security. And that's that Tim Burton had that exact story. There's that great waking, uh, sleeping beauty, uh, which is a great documentary about that, the, re- the resurgence of Disney in the, in the mid to late 80s and the problem that was going on there. And that's the problem I brought up earlier where it's like I have this fabulous job and I didn't, wa- I didn't want to become complacent and love it and then go off off and do other things and then realize halfway through that, oh, my God, I'm 50 and I didn't do what I wanted. So I'm still striving to, to – to, my idea still is I've got a new book coming out uh, in six months uh, in June – uh, which is off another screenplay I translated into a book called Morse P.I., The Men from Ice House 4. So it's kind of like an Indiana Jones uh, that in, in the title. And it's a private detective yarn that takes place in the 40s in Harlem at the end of World War II. And it is like an Indiana Jones, uh, Dick Tracy, Rocketeer meets Chinatown Boys from Brazil, Angel Heart kind of a story. And these are uh, products that I wrote as screenplays. I couldn't get them made. I turned them into novels. I'm now, I guess you could say, a published novelist. I have that as a credential, but I don't look at myself that way because my goal is just to get them turned back into scripts to make into movies. But that's almost antiquated in its thinking because maybe it wouldn't be a good movie. These could be good series now. These yeah. could be good streaming platforms. Yeah, you know, maybe I can get Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, I can get each book could be a season. You know, I can do five or six episodes for my Blood in the Streets book. Uh, or Morris P.I. certainly is a very um, cinematic kind of a, uh, a tour de force of that era of uh, private detective film noir. You know, um, the uh, Chester Himes, who was a black author who did the Harlem Cycle, the series of books with Coffin Ed and Gravedigger Jones, which I am a huge, huge fan of. And that's the basis of Hell Up in Harlem and um, Saturday A Night. Rage in Harlem. Oh, yeah, Rage in Harlem. Yeah, Uptown yeah, Saturday Night's a very different yeah, movie. That's a very different thing. No, no, that's with that's Sidney Poitier directed starring in with Bill Cosby. And th- yeah. those were Uptown Saturday Night, let's do it again. And, and a piece of the action, I think, is the other one. But the Cotton Comes to Harlem later. that we tackled on our Black Exploitation Net with uh, Skip Bolden. And it's a wild movie and yeah and it doesn't do justice to the original you know a lot of those exploitation films they tie in kind of here because you look at the circuits back in the day where there was like the 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 southern circuit where you'd have these crazy car chase movies that would play in drive-ins down there or you'd have the black exploitation movies that would play in urban areas and people the distributors knew where your markets were and what you were you know so um the 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 original source material of the Chester Heim, there's only nine short stories are phenomenal and they're and I'm surprised 
uh, I hope nobody influential is listening to your podcast because I eventually want to turn them into, you know, transcend them and turn them into, uh, you know, I guess series is now as opposed to movies. But Chester Himes was heavily influenced into my Morse PI book. Um, so both. So to answer your question, a long way around is I envision just to try to act more and maybe getting to into the director's chair and get myself out there and continue as much as I can, I guess. Which has more attraction being a showrunner on a, like a show that's based on a book you wrote or being a director? Oh, director, you know, although if you have more say, maybe a showrunner, but my vision is always I feel like been, the showrunners hire the directors. And admittedly, there are shows like The New Pope, which where Paolo and Sorrentino is directing every single episode. Or you see Queen's Gambit, where Scott Frank is writing and directing every single yeah, episode. That's far, far few and in between. And yeah, I don't know but, they, but, much... but the auteur driven shows increasingly seem to be a phenomenon that's working. So I, I'm embracing it. I would hope. I would love to be able to be a part of it because that would be something I've always envisioned, especially with Moore's, um, um, with Blood in the Streets, my first book, is that's something I wanted to direct. It takes place up in New Haven, where I'm from, and it has a lot to my heart. And it's a, it's a love letter to those, like I said, to the Dirty Harrys, to the. I mean, the the the, the idea of that book was to see what would take a, a a character like Lieutenant Frank Bullet and turn him into Inspector Harry Callahan. Yeah. You know, what would be the arc to turn him into this grizzled, a guy bucking the system to the point where the guy's stone his badge away and he's like doing it his own way and taking the law into his own hands that begets a whole kind of vigilante genre in the 70s so that was my fascination and that's what blood in the streets is about trying to figure out you know what the breaking point of the cop uh is that, that then he goes off the, the deep end to try to get um you know uh, justice so to speak so uh i in five years will hope to continue to, to try to do more stuff and get be in more stuff and and get out there and hopefully try to get my stuff to to, to light as well as I guess write more books because if there's a market for it and people are going to want them, you know, I have a prequel already mapped out for the first book, Blood in the Streets, which I'm trying to put together. And then I have a sequel, which I've just started to the book that's coming out in June because I already that's enough. That's a trilogy of stories. The Morris P.I., the 40s. Um, so where can detective. people find I, the books if they want to buy them? Where can people find stand on it? Like where can people find all this stuff that you're cooking Oh, geez. Up? Well, get out your pad and paper. So, like, um, let's and I'll see. include books, links in the uh, in the show notes. Well, thank you. The book "Blood in the Streets" is available on Amazon. You can get it in ebook, paperback, and it's available on audiobook read by Peter Burkrot from Caddyshack. Um, that's the audiobook version. That's or anywhere you buy books, you can find "Blood in the Streets." Uh, the new book, Morris P.I., which is about uh, a private detective in Harlem in the forties, that doesn't come out until June, but that will also be on Amazon. I'm pretty sure that'll also get an ebook and audiobook. We just haven't we're in the copy uh copy edit stages, so we're still talking about everything, but I would assume that that'll also get an ebook and an audiobook release. So you can get those wherever you get your books. Uh you do have Saturday night movie sleepovers that I do with the aforementioned Jay Blake Fischera or Jay Blake and you can get that wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever. Um stand on it which is the homage to Smoking the Bandit, the John Schneider movie, you can rent at cinoflixdod.com, which is John Schneider's streaming service. You can rent it there, or if you want to buy it, the DVD, you can go to johnschneiderstudios.com, and you can get a DVD there. You can get a signed DVD or just a plano DVD. And uh, let's see, I think that's everything, right? And then so. also Hobo with a High Kick. You can go on YouTube to watch Hobo with a High Kick. That's Absol free. Absolutely. At, at, at this channel here. 
Well, Dion, it's been a pleasure and a privilege shooting the shit with you. And um... Oh, and you know, one last thing too. Stand On It has a great soundtrack. Uh, they did a couple songs. Him, Cody McCarver, who's in it, who plays the Jerry Reed character, who's a country singer. Uh, th- that is also available. You can get the soundtrack. And it has a Quentin Tarantino-esque kind of a feel because there's dialogue in between. So there's gotcha. dialogue on me on the soundtrack. It's awesome. Sex appeal, like Tom Jones, Thunderball. Thunderball. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll have to cook up a uh, some sort of cinephile, gritty car movie drinking game at some point down the road. But I do want to find like a way to form like a, a an unofficial clique or inner circle of people who love movies, but who also like to get super fucked up. And uh, I think there we, there's definitely room within our ranks for uh, a few more people to join. Bill Scurry likes to tilt one back from time to time. That he's he's not shy about that. In any event, hope everybody enjoyed this show. Definitely hunt down Dion Baya and all of his various platforms and all his various film appearances and or books that he's written you, you got you crank out a lot of stuff and i'll, I'll be rooting for you in the years to come i'm also on consolidated facebook i'm on twitter i'm on instagram you can get me on all the platforms for the most part yeah beautiful well please remember to leave a rating and review for the podcast and if you want to talk to me you can always find me at colbrax on twitter or my youtube channel geeking with james hancock but we hope you enjoyed the episode but more importantly as always onwards and upwards Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.